It's good to be in the house of the Lord. Um, and as you know, our leadership team, the elders and wives, went to travel to Kentucky, Louisville, and went to a pastor's conference. And uh, the schedule was grueling. Um, the traveling was grueling. It's nine hours up, and Sam did all the driving in his van. Uh, so it was interesting. We hit snow and sleet in the mountains of West Virginia on the way there, and on the way back it was about 80 degrees. So that's that's what you get in this world, right, with our weather, weather patterns. But it was um, it was a wonderful conference. The, the preaching and the teaching was absolutely excellent. And it was very refreshing to be in the presence of approximately 12,000 people, mostly men, um, in ministry or headed in that direction. And to be like-minded, just pouring our hearts out to God. And the gospel and the truth of God was really just drilled into our hearts and minds. And so, though it was a grueling schedule, fast-paced going from this place to that, and in the spiritual sense, I can speaking for myself, I came back encouraged and refreshed. Appreciate your prayers um, to that end. Well, you know that we are in Second Corinthians chapter 10. And unfortunately, as hard as church life is, not only is it hard when people are striving to do the right thing, you also have uh, false teachers. That wolves among the sheep are false teachers that want to come in and destroy the work of God. Yes. Somebody's phone is going off, I think. Oh, okay, okay. All right. So, um, there are false teachers that have come and they are attempting to undermine Paul's great sacrificial work. Paul's poured his heart into these people. He's brought them the gospel. He spent approximately 18 months with them, teaching them about the ways of Christ. And false teachers have come in and they're just picking them apart. They're criticizing things he's, he's done and in essence are trying to win the favor of the Corinthians and really take credit for some of the things that, that Paul accomplished. And Paul does not go down without a fight. He defends himself. And he defends himself because in defending himself and his own character and his words, because he speaks for God as God's spokesperson, he's defending the knowledge of God and truth. That's why this little skirmish, it seems like a little skirmish, but that's why it's so important to him to defend himself. It's so he can be the voice that's speaking into the hearts and the minds of this new church. He doesn't fight back with the flesh, he tells us. That's not my way. It's not my strategy. It's not my style. I'm not going to lie in wait. Vengeance. It's, I'm not going to turn this into cancel culture or a blood feud. But what I am going to do is I'm going to fight back with truth, God's truth. I'm going to set the record straight. Let the chips fall where they may. And he does this. He's informed us because there's such a thing as wrong thinking. There's such a thing as wrong narratives for the way things happen in reality. And they're dangerous. Some are more dangerous than others. But wrong thinking or thinking that's disobedient to God's truths can make this world a very dangerous and unsafe place. Because we just draw, we draw wrong conclusions without God's influence. And they work against ourselves. They work against others and they work against God. 
And this applies, Paul has told us in the previous verses in 1 through 6, and we're in 7 through 16 this morning, but he's told us that this applies to every system of thought. It applies to the highest elevated philosophies offered to us and also the highest different beliefs or, or worship systems and religious systems. There, there are right, there's right thinking and there's wrong thinking and it trickles all the way down to how we think about ourselves, how we think about our, our neighbors, our marriage. There's a right way to parent. There's a right way to relate to one another. There's a right way to work and think about life. And wrong, disobedient thinking means somewhere down the line, somebody isn't safe. And that's when it, when it comes to God's truth, I, I think we have a tendency to think, well, it's an option. And, you know, you don't believe it, better luck next time. But that Paul is informing us the importance of God's truth. It doesn't, the world doesn't work that way. We can't live in disobedience to God and just think that that's an option to life. Things will not go well for us or the world. And as a result of, say, for instance, our secular culture that has a, a different way of looking at life and, and people, humanity, uh, the unborn are not safe in our culture because of the, the arguments that Paul's talking about, the systems of thinking. Uh, elderly are becoming unsafe. Genders now are under attack. And a, a woman in her womanhood or a man in his manhood, it, it, it's called toxic when you try to live these kind of things out. So there's, there's competing systems of thought. And some of them are very, very dangerous. It's not a stretch to say that in our culture, our very humanity is uh, at risk. How we are defined, what it even means to be a person is there's an attempt. It's well, it's being hijacked, which means truth is being hijacked. And we're being fed false narrative after false narrative about how the world works Unfortunately, truth does not always win in this world. We know that. There are those, Paul tells us in Romans, that just suppress it. Yeah, I know it's there, but I'm going to do everything in my power to suppress it because I prefer to live in darkness. And then there are others who just decide that there's nothing, there's no such thing as truth, objective truth. And so you hear the word relativism all the time which just means that you get to decide your own truth. And we know that this is a, sounds attractive, perhaps, but it doesn't work in real life. We can't all define our own standards and live in the same world. Uh, you know, people that don't believe truth is objective or that truth is relative believe it until they're lied to, cheated on, or robbed. And then all of a sudden, they feel violated by some kind of standard and they want the whole world to recognize I've been violated. I want you on board with me to see the way I see how this went down. What's that? That's appeal an appeal to a universal standard of right and wrong. And so it, it doesn't work in real life, but we're still fed it. This false narrative that everybody gets to choose their own truth. The problem is when we do this, things can get really really out of hand when we do not define or understand truth as God has revealed it to us, whether it's natural or special revelation, things 
can get really out of hand when we don't agree on a universal standard of justice and right and wrong. Just kind of um, by way of introduction, this is not a uh, modern problem. It's a human problem. So by way of introduction, let me read you the very final words of a book in the Old Testament. And this is the final verse of 21 chapters of this book. So there's 21 chapters of what happened in the life of the Israelites. And here's how this book concludes. Most of you will know it as soon as I read it. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Judges 21, 25. That's how that book closes. And I'm glad the book closes. Because if you've read it, you're like ready for that book to be over because it, it just exposes the depravity of man. And the depravity even of God's people. God's people strayed and it was a syncretism. It was a messy, messy, messy time in society. And it records act after act of human depravity. People, even the priests, the people of God that were supposed to be the light to the nations were depraved. And and it's a hard book to understand because you're... You see the people of God behaving this way and that way, and you're like, wait a minute, is that, that's a priest. Is, that, is this okay? What, what do we do with this? Society and religion get so upended and chaotic that you can hardly make sense of it. So in the middle, uh, and somewhere in this book, there's this graphic and gruesome story about a Levite, a priest of Israel and his concubine. He travels to a town of Gibeah. And the townspeople notice the traveler and his concubine. He finds a place to lodge and they come to his place of lodging and they beat on the door and they demand that he come out because they want to have they want to have relations with him. And they want they want to have fun. So come on out so we can have our fun with you. And rather than risking his life in doing that, he opens the door and he shoves his concubine out the door and closes it. And now he's safe. The story tells us graphically and gruesomely that this crowd of people in the town abused this woman all night to the point of death. And the scripture is, again, very graphic in the description And the next morning, the Levite wakes up. He opens the door to find his concubine. And Scripture tells us that her fingers, basically her death grip, was on the threshold of his door as if to to use her very last breath of life to try to get on the other side of the door to safety. And this is what society had become. This is what happened to somebody traveling The priest is beside himself and he goes home and he cuts her body into 12 parts. And he sends one part of the the mutilated body to each tribe of the 12 tribes. There's, There's nothing right about that story. 
The priest isn't acting right. The concubine isn't acting right. The town isn't acting right. Nobody in this story and in this book, for the most part, is acting right. They're not all playing with a full deck of cards, you might say. Not even the priest. Not even the God-bearer. And that's the point. That's the point. The point is, of the book is, this is what happens to people, whether it's the people of God, whether it's people who don't believe, believe in God, who try to do life and make sense of things based on their own thinking. Isn't it interesting that it uses the term, everybody did what was right in their own eyes. This was right in their thinking. They, they drew the conclusion, that sounds good. I'm going to do this. I'm going to follow this train of thought. And they called it right. It would make more sense if they just said everybody did what was wrong. But when you leave out God's standard, do you even know? Are you able to conclude on your own without divine help what is right and wrong? The point of this book is that when you get rid of God, there was no king, there was no ruler, there was no voice of God. This is what happens naturally to humanity. And so this priest, he, he's not righteous, but he has this, this moment of in righteous in indignation of how deprived people are. And it's, it's this wake-up call. When you look at this mutilated piece of flesh, wake up. Look what we have become. Look what we have become. Something has to be done. We're, we're butchering our whole lives. We're butchering our society just like this body has been mutilated and butchered. That's what our minds do to us and our world without the word of God. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, holds all of humanity accountable to the truth of God. Christ is king in every thought, the arguments and the lofty opinions are to be in obedience to him. That means the whole world is accountable to think right as God defines what is right. We destroy even the things that we cherish the most. We get so confused. We, we destroy the things we love the most and butcher our sense of right and wrong. So, there's nothing innocent and there's nothing safe. There's nothing good about any narrative or system of thought or religion that is in not in accordance with or under the obedience of the word of God through Christ. And that's why Paul is defending the truth in this situation. It's not as grave as what we find in Judges, but it's a real situation that's happening in Corinth. And what's at stake? It's not just Paul's reputation, it's the knowledge of God that is at stake. And you see what happens if the knowledge of God gets pushed farther and farther out of our influence, you wind up with something like another book of Judges. Now, we have our own societies that live according to the book of Judges in our world. So, what do you do if you're Christian and you've been falsely accused... Uh, people are trying to destroy your message or trying to destroy your ministry, your sphere, whatever it is of influence for Christ. Well, you use God's truth to set the record straight and you leave the results to him. So let's see what 
the Lord wants to teach us in our passage this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, 7 through 16. Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up, but not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters. For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves. But when they measure themselves by another and compare themselves with another, they are without understanding. But we will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even to you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you, for we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others, but our hope is that As your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord, for it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. So this gives us a little bit, it's a lot to take in. I'm going to break it down but because there's some themes that um, evolve, I think, here. Paul's formulating an argument. He's fighting falsehood with truth, and it, it comes out, and we'll look at that, but we get an idea of what he's facing, of what they're saying about him and how they're trying to undermine his authority and his character and his message. They're even sounds like they're trying to take some credit for his accomplishments. You know, I was here first. I did this work in you and they're trying to take credit for it, build upon it. So Paul uses this divine weapon of a biblical worldview, God's truth, to to pick apart this false narrative or these false ways of thinking. He lays out some pretty solid principles here that I think that we will benefit from this morning because he is going to help us to know in our own lives and in our own thinking, are we in line? Are we in, are we on target in the way we think about ourselves and the way we think about others and the way we think about God? He talks about boundaries and limits that God has put in place that are there for our good that are there for our flourishing. And when we get out of our lane, so to speak, bad things can happen. So the first thing that I want to notice in this text is that we have to have the, the right view of ourselves in this world, in God's story. We see this in verse 12. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves... But when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. Look, look how he is 
he is wisely pulling this argument apart. So what he's saying here, mistake number one, you can't measure yourself by yourself. Well, that's what they're doing. And they're making themselves in their own measurement come out on top. Come out looking way better than the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul says, look, in real life, this is not how it works. You, you can't measure yourself by yourself. Sounds like the book of Judges, right? Do what's right in your own eyes. I'm just going to call it like I see it. But he says, this is big trouble if this is how you're going to operate. You're without understanding and your, your mind is already poisoned by sinful thoughts. You're not, you're not walking the line or thinking right down the middle. Why would he say this? Why, why should we not just draw our own assessments of ourselves based on ourselves? Well, if you know anything about yourself, you will know that a lot of times you're just wrong about things. I know we prefer to remember all the times that we were right and we nailed it. But throughout our lives, we are wrong a lot. We misunderstand things. We make wrong decisions, even when we we purposely make wrong decisions, but sometimes we try to do the right thing and still wind up doing the wrong thing. We go back and forth. We can't make up our minds. We say, I'm absolutely sure this is right. And then the next day, oh, nope, nope, this is, a, this is right. I'm going to die on my sword about this. We're not in harmony with, with ourselves because of the fall. We know that, but that's just our reality. We get some things right, sure. But we can't measure ourselves by our own standard. We make commitments to other people, break them. Make commitments to ourselves and do what? Break them. We second-guess ourselves. We sabotage ourselves. Have you ever sabotage yourself? You come up with a plan and you know this is good and this is right, and then what do you do? The same person that came up with a plan that decided this is good and right is also the person that sabotaged what was good and right in their own Mind. We sucker ourselves. James says we, we, we look in the mirror before we've even turned around to walk away. We don't even know what we looked at. We can't remember the true self. So we're not completely in harmony here. We're not completely reliable to, do, to be the only ones to measure. We need an outside standard, which, of course, for Paul would be God. Not, not our own performance, not our abilities, not our personal assessments. So the point is, we're, we're limited. We're limited by our finiteness. So we can't be the, the final word or arbiter of truth in our assessment of ourselves and how life works. You know, even in the info age, I mean, we, we have everything at our fi- fingertips. It's incredible. But we can't grasp it all. We're just not able to do it. And Paul says that if you're trying to do this, you actually don't have understanding in claiming to have understanding. And the Bible would call that in Proverbs a foolish person. You can't count on only yourself and approve yourself. Be the sum total in the final evaluation. Uh, Paul has previously called this thinking lofty opinions. It's not just the facts that he talked about, the arguments which are based on facts, and at least you think it's right. This is an arrogance 
It's an arrogant way to think that we can always come up with the right answer just based on who we are and what we have available in our feelings and our emotions and our intellect. It's pride and it's against the knowledge of God. Proverbs fourteen twelve. there's a way that seems right to a man, but it ends or its end is the way of death. Sounds like judges again. So we, we can get off in our own estimation. You know, there's a big difference between human speculation and divine revelation. It's what the Apostle Paul is saying. Self-measuring is worldly. It gets in our own way, gets in the way of others, and it gets in God's way, if you will. Here's how Tony Evans, Pastor Tony Evans, describes it. And I'm going to read it as he spoke it. When my first grandson was being born, Jackson, when he was being born, I was in the labor room. And labor got extended. And there was pain for an extended period of time. And the doctor remarked that the head was in the wrong position. It hadn't fully turned down yet. And so because the head hadn't fully turned down yet, delivery hadn't occurred yet. There was extended pain because the head was in the wrong position. See, the head's got to be turned down in order for the delivery to take place. If the head is turned up, all you got is extended pain. A lot of us have extended pain because our head is turned up. It's in the wrong position. And we measure ourselves by ourselves. And we haven't turned our head down yet and humbled ourselves beneath the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you. You measure yourself by yourself. So when you measure yourself by yourself, you need to know that you limit yourself. Was Paul, Paul, see, Paul, that's what Paul's doing with this argument here, this way of thinking. It doesn't line up. And you are actually hurting yourself. You're actually limiting yourself by measuring yourself according to your own speculation. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves. Paul says, I don't do this. I don't dare measure myself according to myself. I have an objective standard and it's God. It's a standard that is outside of me, a standard that I'm accountable to. And we've talked a lot in our covenant class. Corky's mentioned it in Galatians about the difference between subjective and objective. Subjective is, is a perspective from the point of the subject. Whereas the object is outside the subject. And so subjective means it's according to your, your thoughts, your feelings, your emotions. There's a place for subjective feeling, of course, and thinking. But all of humanity is accountable to the object of truth because God is outside of us. He doesn't depend on us. We depend on him. We need that objectivity, the truth that's just there, no matter how we see it or think about it. It's that universal truth that we all want to appeal to when we've been wronged. It lines up with reality. So, for instance, if you say, just to take something that I think we would all agree on, one plus one is true, say that's an objective truth. It just is. So, if, if one plus one is true today... How about next Sunday? Is one plus one still two? How about in the North Pole? Or how about in the South Pole? 
Does it still stand true? Or how about when I don't feel like it ought to be true? Or how about when I don't feel like using your standard of addition and I want to come up with my own system of adding things that won't be the same? You see, it's outside of me and what I think about it doesn't affect it. I'm the one who loses out because I'm not living according to reality. God who exists outside of us sets the standards for our existence. He sets the standards for our ministry, right? That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. He's all wise. He possesses all authority. And we may think that we're something. The, the, the Corinthians want, are, or these false teachers are doing what I always wanted to do in school. They're writing up their own test. They're taking it. And they're grading their own paper. And they're getting really good grades. It's all subjective. Oh, yeah, that sounds good enough. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's a great question. Even better answer. It's just all inward. We maximize our lives and our ministry purpose when we walk according to God's standards. Then, Paul points out the truth that it also affects the way or it's important how we view others. Look at verses 13 and then 15 and 16. We will not boast beyond limits. So here's how he does it. But we'll boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even to you. We do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others, verse 15, but our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. And we know from this and other places in Scripture, Paul's personal ministry strategy was to preach the gospel where it has not been preached before. And God calls other people to minister in other ways. Uh, In the churches that were planted, they appointed elders and and deacons and so forth and other servants to establish the truth of God in these church plants. But the Apostle Paul, he was called to go to places where the unreached people are. But in this text, what's he's doing? He's making us aware That we live in a universe with boundaries. There's limits and these limits and places and spheres have been set in place by God. And we do well to live within them. As a matter of fact, we do best, the best that this world has to offer, this fallen, broken world that we sang about. And there's hope and God has broke the curse and it's being redeemed. It's in the process. But... There are boundaries that we want to live in, even in our ministry, in our lives, in all the spheres that God has spoken into. And when we cross them, we interfere with others. And that's what's happened here. They've crossed into his sphere. Which means they've gotten out of their own. So we have boundaries. God sets up boundaries and limits and spheres that we all have to live with. And they're spoken in so many different domains of life. He sets boundaries for kids that need to stay in their lane and boundaries for parents and boundaries for husbands and their roles and wives and their roles. All these areas of influence. We don't like boundaries in our culture. 
we're led to believe or we're taught that the ultimate form of humanity is a man who is completely free to make his own decisions. And any decision that has to be made for him is a sign of slavery and bondage. It's exactly opposite of what Scripture teaches us. Scripture says that the more we think on our own without God, we will wind up enslaved. By the way, if you look at the book of Judges, what happened? There's this cycle of what? In slavery. And then God sets them free through repentance. Slavery. Human thinking, wrong thinking, systems that are not within the narrative that God sets for us. The big story of Scripture is wrong thinking and it enslaves us. But we have boundaries and they need to be respected. As God calls it, he calls the shots. Now, we like to look at everything as boundaries. The, the, the goal of life is to break through boundaries, to, to break glass ceilings. Well, sometimes man sets boundaries that are not set by God. It's called legalism. You've got to live a certain way and you can't go here, says me. And so sometimes we rebel against those, but that doesn't mean they are misused. It can't be misused, but that doesn't mean that there are not real things as Boundaries. God keeps boundaries for us to keep beautiful things beautiful. You ever heard that before in Psalm 100? I have. So it's, it's a measure, Paul says. It's like a measuring cup. If you cook, you have recipes and you have to put a certain amount of this in order to get the product that's the best. And if it calls for a, a teaspoon of Hornet hot sauce and then a cup of sour cream and you mix the two up, somebody's going to get hurt trying to eat that stuff. It's measuring cups. There, there are precise things to be followed. There are measurements. There are ingredients to be used. It determines how much. And no more, no less. And that determines our human flourishing. God's Boundaries are freeing, not burdensome. We like to play God. We like to play God. We like to redefine things. We like to call the shots on things. Oh, that's not so bad. This is okay. It's, it's hubris. It's pride. We like to, we're in the midst of a culture, um, and again, it's not a modern problem. It's a human problem, but our culture is literally trying to redefine reality. You know, we had virtual reality, which means this isn't real, but it's virtually real. But now we are trying to redefine what we know of as even what is real in our society. And the most virtuous thing today is personal choice. It's that empowerment thing where I get to just look at life, look at myself and look at you and look at laws and everything else and religions the way I want to see them. And I demand that you listen to me and give me a platform equal to everybody else's platform. So the power of personal choice is the most virtuous thing that we see in our society. I hope that you've noticed that because it just leaks out of every headline and all the media that we watch these days. It doesn't matter what about morals. It doesn't matter about what's right and wrong. It doesn't have to make sense, right? Doesn't have to make sense. Doesn't have to be logical or sensical or cogent. Just has to be my opinion, and you got to listen to it and appreciate it. That's the culture. And that's how you're the best version of yourself, is what we're taught. And we have come up with, a, as a result, we've come up even just in the last couple of years with some t- 
terribly dangerous ideas about how society ought to work and what, how we're going to fix it. When you don't have a standard, if, you, if you're a person that doesn't have a standard of what it even means to be fixed, how are you going to have a solution to, what, to fixing the problem? So we've come up with all these crazy things. Unfortunately, they didn't la- a lot of them didn't last very long, like defund the police, just putting it out there. I know there's racism. I know there's, there's injustice. Life isn't fair. I know there's real problems and real pain. Life is messy and it hurts. But to come up with the conclusion to get less of the people that bring order to our society as the remedy to fix chaos is just doesn't take a genius to realize that can't be the solution. Sure, there are things that need to be fixed. That can't be the solution. And as a result of that bad idea, in real life, the communities that adopted it have suffered greatly. Crime increased. People got hurt. And that's just an example. But there's a lot of these things out there. Our personal choice, when not checked by God's standard, makes life unsafe most of the time. For women and children, by the way, these great ideas that society throws at us, if you just track them where they trickle down, most of the time it's women and children that come up with the short end of the stick. Personal choice. Years ago, I read a worldview book uh, by Tony Nevin, I think his name was, called Do Fish Know They're Wet? And, of course, it's about knowing your environment. Knowing, do you know the environment that you've been designed to live in? Like, does a fish even know it's wet? Great question. Well, what's the boundary of a fish? Well, it's water. And a fish that decides, I no longer want to live in this environment, and hops out of the tank or jumps out of the pond or whatever, is going to have a pretty short life. And it's not going to go well. And while it's dying, it's going to be suffering involved before. See, a a fish is true to itself when it embraces swimming in water like what? Like a fish. That's its true self, if you will. There's boundaries. There's limits. There are domains. So a lion may be the king of the jungle, as we are told. But if that lion decides, I'm also going to be the king of the sea, it's not going to go well for that lion. Because as powerful as that lion is in its environment, it's just going to get eaten up. Who's the king of the sea? Charlie the tuna. That's what I was taught on commercials growing up. Charlie the tuna. Makes good tuna fish. Real In reality, that's in commercial marketing, but in reality, it's the killer whale, right? That's what we're told. The toughest thing, the king of the sea, is the killer whale. Don't mess with the killer whale. Now, the, if the king of the sea decides, I want to get out of my environment and be the king of the jungle, it's not going to go well. Not going to be a very kingly act. See, the, the boundary is connected to the design and, and the, the environment in which it flourishes we're not designed if we're not designed for it it's going to hurt us it's going to frustrate us things are just not going to go well we're going to get green around the gills it's going to harm us we will not be safe so applied to this passage god's given gifts 
He's given different people gifts. He's, he's placed them in geographical places. He's given them ways to be influential in their homes, in their communities, in their churches. He, he's given us lanes, if you will, and our spheres. And he wants us to thrive in those and, and stay in those because that's how it serves his purpose. His measure is his glory. That's how we can bring God the most glory is by living according to his boundaries and the spheres that he sets for us, whether it's in uh, parenting, whether it's in our marriage, whether it's in our church, whether it's at work. The Apostle Paul is just bringing down the weight of truth on the false narrative that's in operation in Corinth. See, we're creating the image of God. We have differences that are there on purpose. Because our differences glorify God in a variety of ways. And when we mess those up or we cross lines, we're not bringing glory to God and we're only enslaving ourselves. These false teachers had a view, wrong view of self. They had a wrong view of others. They are crossing boundaries. Now how do we know our lane? Well, you come to God's word. It's a process. How do you know when you're in the right lane in your spheres? It's a learning process. Right. Scripture says that we are transformed by the renewing of our mind. The spirit comes in and we seek God and he helps us to see these things. And he uses the body of Christ and the Holy Spirit. And you will know there's a confirmation among the people of God and the spirit of God. God's been doing this for a long time. He's pretty good at it, even in our broken world. Even with our wrong thinking, God is bringing glory to himself with creatures that are not yet whole. When we stray from our lane, and we try to to take over somebody else's sphere of influence, it means we're not in the lane that God wants us to be, so we're messing them up. At the same time, we're not serving the purpose that he called us to serve. So it's a double mess in that sense, because we can't be in two lanes at one time. You know, you remove all the sidelines from a football game and you don't want to watch it. You you, you remove the back line from a tennis match. Where's the ball going to go? There's things there. You remove lines in marriage as God designed. It's not going to be good, a good relationship. So there's boundaries there. There's spheres there, even in ministry. God gives us personalities, gifts, ways to influence one another. And they're supposed to be different by God's design. We don't have to be a ball hog and play all over the field. As good as we might think we are. Lastly, a right view of God in verses 17 through 18. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. Isn't it interesting how it just always winds up to God? Like we're accountable to God. He has the final word in everything. And the the Apostle Paul is saying, if we are seeking our own Patting ourselves on the back might feel good, but it's it's nothing. The approval we need is God's. 
Everything is pointing to God, our end. And we sang this morning, every knee will bow. The end is to the glory of God. It always comes down to the glory of God. The most powerful thing that we should long for or to hear is, well done. From who? God. Oh, you, you can hear it from the world. You can hear it from your little circle of society and culture and friends and so forth. But if we don't long to hear it from God, if that's not our gain or our, our goal and our greatest longing, then we're going to be off track. So let me just close with this, uh, another illustration from Pastor Tony Evans with all of this in mind. Brothers and sisters, on your best day, you ain't nothing but a dummy. I'm going to read this as it was spoken. In big department stores, they have in the window dummies. Dummies. Dressed up, good-looking dummies. Ain't nothing but dummies. They've been dummies. Dummies that have been handed clothes. Dummies that have been handed jewelry. Dummies that have been handed dresses. And they're dummies that look good in a display window. But the purpose of the dummy is not the dummy. For the dummy doesn't have anything that has not been given to him. All the dummy is doing is wearing what has been provided by another. Why has the other, the store ownership, provided the dummy with all that stuff that the dummy has? So that the dummy can advertise the store. The purpose of the store ownership is not just to have folk walk by and admire the dummy. Dummy. The purpose of the store. Come into the store. Admiration is not the goal. Interest is the goal because of how good we done made this dummy look. Now, why don't you come and see all we have to offer you? Brothers and sisters, on your best day, you ain't nothing but a dummy. Because everything you have been given, naked you came into this world, naked you're going to leave this world, everything you get to put on in between has been given to you. It is pride to think, I have done this. Like Nebuchadnezzar. By my own strength, by my ability. It's a gift from the living God. The worst thing you can have is a dummy that forgets he's a dummy. Because now it has missed its reason for being. God has no problem of taking dummies who forget their dummies and putting them in their place so that the dummies understand. I am that I am by the grace of God. So with that said, and before God today, we want to leave this place reflecting on these questions. Do I have a right view of myself? Do I have a right view of others? Do I have a right view of God? May God bless the preaching of his word.